Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. A quick announcement before the show. Greg and I will be presenting a live show on Thursday, September 1st, 2022 at 7 p.m. at Caveat on the Lower East Side. We'll be celebrating our 15th year of making podcasts by recording a podcast before a live audience with special guest Hugh Ryan, author of the new book, The Women's House of Detention. Join us in person or join us over the live stream by getting tickets at caveat.nyc. That's Thursday, September 1st, 2022 at 7 p.m. Tickets for in-person and live stream at caveat, C-A-V-E-A-T, dot N-Y-C, and click on calendar. Episode 393, a conversation with Rick Burns and James Sanders on New York, a documentary film. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. Greg is off this week, but in a moment I'll be joined by two guests, filmmakers and authors Rick Burns and James Sanders, who collaborated on the groundbreaking and award-winning eight-part documentary film series, New York, a Documentary Film, which aired in installments on PBS in 1999, 2001, and 2003. They also wrote, along with Lisa Addis, the companion book to the series, New York, an Illustrated History, which was completely updated and re-released in late 2021. And there are some additions to the series coming soon. But now I want to take you back to Sunday, November 14th, 1999. The front page of that day's New York Times included a story about the runaway success of a new primetime game show that had recently debuted on ABC called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It was a sensation and had recently trounced NBC's Frasier in the ratings and nearly pulled in as many viewers as the top show of the season, ER. Now, no disrespect to the late Regis Philbin, but it was another program that aired that night that I tuned into, as did millions of other American history lovers. Over on PBS, the first installment of New York, a documentary film, premiered that night at 9 p.m., followed by four more episodes that aired nightly through Thursday of that week. Over those first five films, New York, a documentary film, told the sweeping saga of New York City's history from, from Henry Hudson's arrival all the way up through the Great Depression. Over those five nights, millions tuned into PBS to see America's most important city take shape. We watched it transform from Dutch to English 
to American, to the construction of the Erie Canal and the boom that followed, the commissioner's plan, the arrival of the Irish, the, the timeless words of Walt Whitman, we witnessed the Civil War, the horrific draft riots. We saw the boom of the Gilded Age, fueled by the labor of millions of new immigrants, and witnessed the tragic living conditions of the city's poorest. We celebrated the consolidation of Greater New York, the Reform Era, and New York's ascent as the cultural capital of the world, with Broadway, the Harlem Renaissance, and jazz filling the air, and skyscrapers racing to new heights, all before the Depression stopped the party in its tracks. We saw all of that over five episodes, brought to life with images, music, and insightful commentary and storytelling provided by the city's finest historians, authors, and leaders. But of course, the story didn't end in the 1930s. And so episodes six and seven brought the narrative up through the end of the 20th century with a deep dive into the power and might of Robert Moses and the city's struggle through the financial crisis of the 1970s. Those episodes, which were meant to be the end of the series, debuted on September 30th, 2001, just weeks after the attacks of 9-11. And so, in September 2003, they released episode 8, dedicated to the history and the legacy of the World Trade Center. Today, I'm joined by Rick Burns and James Sanders to discuss this monumental undertaking. How do you even begin on a project like this? We're going to discuss the fundamental themes of New York's history and how Rick and James celebrated them in their series. And we'll hear about the next installment and how they could possibly make sense out of these past few extraordinary years. So now turning to our guests, before the New York film series came out on PBS, Rick Burns had collaborated with his brother, the documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, in the 1980s on the award-winning documentary series The Civil War, which aired in September 1990 on PBS. Rick founded his production company, Steeplechase Films, in 1989, and would, appropriately enough, soon release the documentary Coney Island in 1991. Following this series, Rick has continued to produce many films, including works on Ansel Adams, Eugene O'Neill, the 2006 film Andy Warhol, a documentary film, which he co-wrote with James Sanders, the 2019 film Oliver Sacks, His Own Life, and many more. James Sanders received a graduate degree from Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, and is an alumnus of the MIT School of Architecture and Planning. As principal and founder of James Sanders Studios in New York, an architecture design and research practice, he's worked on numerous architecture, urban design, and development projects around the city, including the Seaport Culture District and the 1980s redevelopment of Bryant Park. In addition to co-writing New York, a documentary film and its companion book, James authored the book Celluloid Skyline, New York and the Movies in 2001, which is a landmark study of the relationship between New York and film. He is a recipient of numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and an Emmy Award. Rick Burns and James Sanders, welcome to the Bowery Boys. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you. I, I have to tell you, your series, New York, a documentary film, and its companion book, New York and Illustrated History, were really instrumental in my own understanding of and appreciation for New York history. I remember watching those first five episodes every night back in 1999 in my Lower East Side apartment, and um, and it dawned on me that I was actually part of, of this bigger story, of, of the story of New York. I was connected in some way, and in some other way, the city made more sense to me. And that Christmas, my grandmother gave me the companion book, <laughs> along with the five VHS tape set, you know, that had the skyline on the side of it. Yeah, uh, I remember it well. <laughs> so, so really, uh, needless to say, more than 20 years later, I am just thrilled to be speaking with you both about the series, the newly updated book, and about your, uh, your love for New York history. So welcome to the show. Thank you again, Tom. It's really great to be with you. And thank you for the lovely comments about, about the film and the, and the book. It means everything to us. Well, it's a true story. Um, but before we jump into the series, can you take us back for a moment to its origins? Rick, how did you two meet? And when did you get this idea to produce the series? You know, um, James and I have known each other since um, we were both at Columbia uh, James, a year older than me, um, at least a year further on than I. I think we met first in 1977-78. And James was off to architecture school, and I was soon off to, to England. But I, I kind of hit it off myself with James right away. He was kind of part of a friend group there in the late 70s. And we kept track of each other. And, you know, after working with my brother Ken on the series on the Civil War, in the late 80s, you know, the first film I made kind of entirely on my own after working with Ken was a film about Coney Island. And mm -hmm. I got a call from James one day in 1991, just before that was broadcast, saying he had a wanted to do a, a feature piece for The New York Times, which was super delightful to me. And James did a lovely, lovely piece, which kind of came out before our film Coney Island did. And on the phone, James and I began to talk about how Coney Island was really just the kind of the, you know, the Hobbit to a much larger Lord of the Rings, which was, you know, a film about New York. Mm -hmm. And we both mm -hmm. kind of really kind of gravitated with it. I'm just kind of lock, stock and barrel with the sense that it was something that we were going to do that had to happen that had never before happened. I mean, there'd never been a series of this kind which in a multi-part way took apart a city and said, what's the story of the city? Mm -hmm. And that's, that was the beginning of it back in the early 1990s. And uh, one way or the other, James and I have been working on it ever since. And James, how did America feel about New York in the early 1990s? Uh, well, the Time Magazine did a cover piece called The Rotting of the Big Apple. <laughs> and this and this was in 1991 or two, which I mentioned because I want to distinguish it from all the other pieces that had come out in the mid to late 70s, mm -hmm. the sort of taxi driver, you know, era, mm -hmm. uh, Midnight Cowboy era, whatever you want to call it, you know, Ford to City Drop Dead era. That that had been a whole sort of shunning of the city. And then there had been a sort of energized moment in the 1980s under you know president reagan meant deregulation of wall street a lot of money started pouring into the city through wall street and ed koch was the mayor and he was very energetic but 
what had caught up with New York was the crime problem. Even though the city was booming economically and it had stopped losing population, which it had been doing for some time, mm-hmm. particularly white flight, so-called, had sort of ebbed. Um, and it was beginning to take in a big flow of immigrants. Crime had never been higher in that year of 1990. And so uh, it became a national story again of how dangerous the city was. And I think when Rick and I started this, we really felt that, well, first of all, we felt very strongly that one way or the other, New York was a national story. I mean, it's an important thing to understand. This project was never conceived as a local project, not to say anything against wonderful local projects, but it was always conceived as a project for PBS that would be broadcast nationally in every city and town in the country. So we had to defend the notion that New York was a national story, which we were prepared to do. But I also think there was more to it than that. We did want to, although we wanted to show warts and all in the city's history and and not shy away from the enormous problems, we did, I think, both believe in the city. And that was not that common at the time. It was not common to find people who said, um, who really believed in the values of the city and its importance. And so when we began the series in earnest, after the conversations Rick was talking about, we had a sort of fabled drink at the Algonquin Hotel. Rick expressed his enormous interest in Robert Moses and the power broker, which I was also deeply interested in. Um, I was working on a book on New York and the movies, Celluloid Skyline. Mm -hmm. And we, we sort of decided to join forces. And as we did around 92, 93, we began writing treatments and so forth. I could really, really remember the idea that this was a, a kind of a, a charge, you know, a, a, almost like a, a real movement to try to show people why New York was important, why its values were important and so forth, because it was it was definitely another low moment. Yeah. And, and you had seen it if you were in Columbia in the 1970s. You had some experience already a couple of decades under your belt here. I mean, I moved to New York in 1975, you know, which was the Ford to City drop dead moment. Mm-hmm. And there was a kind of, you know, James is a, is a New York um, boy born and bred. And I came from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, you know, there's a kind of person who came to the city, you know, during this kind of fabulous, terrible time where you kind of if you came, you really wanted to be here. I mean, it was thrilling beyond belief. And it, the city was you know, it was graffiti and it was crime and it was falling apart. And at the same time, there was a kind of an energy, mm-hmm. um, uh, an artistic energy and a useful energy and a kind of a feel that, you know, that New York specialness shone through even at the worst times, maybe in a certain way, especially at the worst times, that it was a place that was, you know, as Marshall Berman, incredible urban, urbanist, um, who's part of our film, who died a few years ago, said, you know, of people from troubled places in the city, you know, we come from ruins, but we're not ruined. Very much a sense that New York is a place that it may have ruins, it may have had ruins, but it was not ruined, that it was determinedly a place which was a force to be reckoned with, even in its most difficult times, which it absolutely was, you know, at that moment. In the, and it was a long moment indeed. I mean, the longest time New York ever spent, you know, on the cross, so to speak, was the period from, you know, the 1960s, late 60s, down through the terrible crime period of the 1990s, James was talking about, you know, like virtually a 30-year period, which coincided with a kind of an ur- urban decline generally, you know, the mm-hmm. Rust Belt period, um, where it was a sense like, well, these old, especially older urban 
Eastern cities, maybe their time has come for the city drop dead. Mm -hmm. um, and while they were kind of shiny, bright cities in the Southwest, maybe these old places, you know, their time was up. And I think that what, what's been shown to be the case is that absolutely wasn't true. Mm -hmm. And that the story of New York is partly tells you how and why that was not true then and could really in some sense never be true. That New mm -hmm. York, you know, is the capital of America. It is not the official capital of America, though it was briefly um, after the revolution. But it is the capital. It's the commercial capital and it's the cultural capital. And like unlike most other countries in the world, America now has two capitals. And so New York has always had this very funny set apart reality with respect to um, the rest of the country. But it has this amazing story, which I think James and I were absolutely intent on identifying and telling that story, which is for a city which is so large has so many moving parts, so many people, um, and now is nearly 400 years old. It's a remarkably legible story of a place that was dedicated almost uniquely to commerce and business, unlike religious colonies like Boston or later Baltimore or before at Philadelphia, all of which you know, had a religious mission to begin with, at least. Mm -hmm. New York never had a religious mission. So it never had an ideology that said, you know, you have to be X to be here which meant it always that commercial dedication meant in came everybody from the very beginning. So there are 18 languages spoken in New York by the 1640s. Mm -hmm. So it's already got this distinctive um, characteristic mixture of commerce and diversity or what came to be capitalism and democracy. Mm -hmm. So here is this kind of uranium plutonium, you know, reactive sort of charged with, the two most powerful forces in American life, commerce and diversity. And out of that has come the most transformative culture in the country, where because it's unattached to the past, doesn't care who you are, doesn't ask for your papers, new ideas and new people and new ways of thinking, new problems, you know, come here first and come here most intensely. So as Craig Wilder said in one of our early films, you know, we've tested everything first, mm -hmm. not because there's any particular virtue to New York, but because it has been so powerfully embodying those forces of transformation. We tend to get to the problems and therefore also almost by necessity, the solutions as well. So you look to New York's story and you discover that it's the story of America over a 400 year period as it has gone from, you know, a colony, you know, nation, you know, on the East Coast to where we are now. And that's an amazing, amazing story and remains, no matter whether you hate New York or love mm -hmm. New York, remains a central American story to this day and will continue indefinitely in that respect. But so many of the things that you just brought up, because um, you brought up a lot of points in the city's history early on, you know, as we were trying to figure out if New York was going to be the capital or something else, so many of those things, and including including the notion of like, what is New York today? What, what is this reaction that is the city? So many of those things are introduced in your very first film. And then you're talking about, you know, New York in the 70s, which I believe you cover in episode seven. So James, I'm wondering, as you're sitting there having cocktails at the Algonquin <laughs> and trying to figure out what you have in front of you, how in the world do you figure out how to take this beast and streamline it into a story that makes any sense? Well, one thing we did, which uh, I think Rick still has a copy of this thing, uh, it did it did feel like um, diving into the Atlantic Ocean. 
Mm-hmm. It felt at first like, how could we possibly put our arms around this thing? Um, so what we did was one place to start was, maybe this is some of my background from architecture, we took a giant piece of paper, literally up, it was a piece of photographic background paper, wow. um, the kind they use behind models. And it was a light blue and it was about five feet wide and six feet long or something like that. And we pinned it up and we started organizing the key events of the city's history chronologically and by theme. So that began to almost like a musical piece. We knew it would unfold in time because that's the movies, mm-hmm. but it couldn't just be obviously one event after another, after another. People would stop watching after the fourth event. Um, there had to be, uh, it, it had to be playing out themes and it had to have a kind of narrative energy. And I would say of all things, this is the thing I learned the most from Rick, who at that time was far more experienced in this than I was he would always stop and say and look at me and say, what's at stake here? Why do we care about this? Not just, it can't be in the film just because it happened. It has to be defended as part of a story that we care about. And that I would say of all the challenges we had was was the the largest one because history doesn't really care, um, so to speak. There are these events, Um, but that became a way that we could begin to tease our way through these major and minor events and find themes for each episode and then larger themes that would govern the entire show. And toward that end, somewhere along the way, fairly early on, we realized we were playing with sort of nothing less than commerce and diversity, these two incredible poles of New York history, or call it capitalism and democracy, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the idea of creating a democratic capitalist culture like no other had existed, none other had existed before. And that was being brewed in New York in some extraordinary way at a kind of at 500 degrees um, boiling over. But something new was being born. And that became our kind of a lodestar to getting through the giant, vast sea of material. I think within that, too, you know, from what James is saying, the way the themes and the structure began to feel almost self-evidently um, like they had to work out was, you know, our first film, um, which goes from 1609, Henry Hudson rounds the corner of Coney Island down to 1825. Mm-hmm. Well, 1825, why? Because of the Erie Canal. Mm-hmm. So the first episode is really about the geography that New York had to begin with. And then ends with the geography it created for itself in a tremendous, one might even say, audacious, transformative impulse. Not content to being one naturally one of the three greatest deep water ports in the world with Hong Kong and San Francisco. New York City Fathers, DeWitt Clinton chief among them, determined that what they would do is they would steal everything that was coming out of the hinterlands of the country by creating this 363-mile ditch from you know the great lakes to the hudson river making sure that everything mined timbered manufactured farmed was brought down and came right down past the bowery yeah that's this extraordinary moment so by the time you get to the end of episode one so to speak the physical geography as well as many other things about new york are now in place and indeed new york which had grown a great deal before 1825 explodes 
-hmm. every 10 years it popula its population doubles. You know, a million Irish come in at the time of the famine, Irish famine. So you have this suddenly this pouring in of people, which of course creates enormous difficulty. And so the next episode two comes to a climax with the draft riots during the Civil War, this tremendous outburst, the worst instance of civil arrest unrest to this day in American history. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that each of these moments, each of the structural moments became in a sense, the way of framing the next story to come, which had these, took these broad leaps forward through the great period of order and disorder as we called it from the period 1825 down to 1865. And on yeah. it went with yeah, major I had to... stories, major stories sort of working themselves out as each of the films moved along and they came to feel, I, James, I mean, I certainly feel this way, they came to feel inevitable to us as a way of structuring the overall story of the city. Yeah, I, I have to say at the sort of toward the end of or three quarters of the way through episode one, when you introduce DeWitt Clinton, um, it's kind of like, ooh, I, I love Clinton. I love what he, you know, brought to the city, not only the commissioner's plan, but the Erie Canal, you know, truly transformative. And it's like, oh, it takes us into episode two, during which New York starts to actually look more like the city that we know today. Indeed. Yeah, the, uh, I think it was an interesting way to start having ended episode one with how explosive the growth of the city was in the right after the Erie Canal. We open episode two by telling you how it was still basically a village. Right. Hardly anything we associate with cities yet existed in 1825, and almost all of them existed by 1865. A police force, street lighting, public transportation, suburbs, slums, uh, commuters. Uh, all the department stores. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of the things that you associate with big city life, distinctive way of life, different in kind than a small town or a village, was formed between the, in those incredible 40 years, along with these huge problems that came with them. And you introduced P.T. Barnum, Mass Entertainment, and of course, Walt Whitman sort of becomes a spiritual guide, a literary guide through the episode. In a sense, the kind of the spiritual guide to democracy. I mean, that, um, that this person who became the first sort of poet laureate of democracy, who wandering the streets of New York, kind of a Brooklyn kid um, to begin with, and sees, you know, firsthand, he's born in 1819, you know, sees firsthand this city arising and as many people are appalled by the problems that are coming up, and he, in fact, notes them as well, he's so struck by what is amazing and powerful and creative and deeply moving about the democratic vista um, that he sees in, in, on the streets of New York City. And so he became, you know, inevitably uh, Whitman becomes, you know, a sort of a poet and a kind of a witness um, to the city during the mid-19th century, during that formative period that James is talking about. I mean, nobody, nobody spoke about it more movingly um, and more lastingly. I mean, go back and read Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, written mm -hmm. before the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's a poem about New York then that speaks to the hearts of any New Yorker or anybody anywhere to this day. It's in its bones, a New York poem. It's really a beautiful moment in the film, you know, as the narrator's reading uh, crossing Brooklyn Ferry, and Whitman's words are just so, so forward-thinking. He's speaking literally to you, the the men and women of a generation, or 
ever so many generations hence and saying, just as you feel when you look on the river and sky, so I felt. It's like he's speaking right to you. It, it's so it's so moving because you realize, and it's Spalding Gray, by the way, who, who read mm. it for us so beautifully. And, you know, that sense that women had that, that generations hence would be here after he and everybody else in his time was gone. And that sense of increasing the radius of discourse to include not just anybody from his own time, but anybody, anytime, mm-hmm. um, really speaks to the kind of the expansive embrace, which is so distinctively New York, that it is a place whose heart is open to everyone from anywhere not necessarily in a feel-good way. There's a lot of gruffness that goes along with it, but a sense that anybody at any time from anywhere can make the choice to be here, and the moment they're here, they're a New Yorker. Nobody says, where are you from? Uh, You don't deserve to be here. You can't, it'll be another 10 years before you're actually a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker from the moment you're here, and that sense of the embrace and inclusiveness, which is so much in Whitman, um, one feels that it's just, you know, that the streets are a form of embrace where everyone is welcome. And that, that I think is something which is true of many places. I think it remains to this day, importantly, spiritually true of New York as in no other place in the country, um, mm-hmm. that you can still come here and no one for a second asks or questions what you're doing here. You're a New Yorker, and because you've decided to do that, that's incredible. That yeah. is an openness that is—it's legendary, and it's also, in a certain way, revolutionary. I think in that it creates a culture, which, however much it's harsh and however much it has many, many problems, it's a culture which essentially says we're all in it together, and it's why it remains, I think, the most American of American places. You just mentioned Spalding Gray. Um, was one of your voice actors uh, reading the part of of Walt Whitman. Um, James, could you speak for a moment on the amazing on-air talent and the the voices, aside from the narrator, David Odgen Stiers, um, who is the voice, I guess, gives voice to your script, but then also the amazing historians. You've got Mike Wallace, Robert Caro, Kenneth Jackson, and so many others who tell the story episode after episode. Yeah, that was one of the most uh, rewarding parts of actually making the series. The series was obviously very hard to make, and uh, particularly the first five episodes uh, called for an immense amount of effort. Uh, Rick and I were writing the book together. Rick and I were writing the scripts together. Rick was directing the film. I was wrangling all the images and things for the book. Anyway, it was a crazy time and exhausted both of us, I think, but we were kept going by some of the incredible collaborations. Now, obviously the, the parts of this, as you've sort of called out, is really kind of three textual parts, if you will, spoken parts. One is the primary narration, which is crucial. We're telling a story and uh, we need someone to guide us through. Um, the next part is the contemporary voices, which were very powerful. So the idea that, you know, Whitman was a young man when he was writing these things. Mm-hmm. He wasn't an old man. And um, the, the incredible talent, Rick and, and our then partner, Lisa Addis, were really responsible for um, 
locating these marvelous actors and uh, others who would speak, sometimes not actors at all. George, George Plimpton, for example, um, who just brought to life George Templeton Strong such mm -hmm. that you felt you were absolutely there. You were talking to old George himself. Uh, old George. <laughs> grumpy old George. Yeah, grumpy old George. He was so beautiful in the way he spoke. And um, and then, of course, the third component was the on-camera on interviews, uh, which, you know, was a question of selecting uh, people who had written about one aspect or another of New York history, or in the case of Mike Wallace and Ken Jackson, all of New York history. Um, for me personally, Ken was a special delight because I had been his student at Columbia and taken his famous American urban history class. It was before the bike rides. Oh, I was going to ask. I was going to no, ask. No, I never. I was actually, that's how old I am, um, pre-bike ride. But I uh, <laughs> had taken his class and, and learned much of what I learned about New York history from him. So wow. when it came time to have him as part of it, and, and he and Mike, I thought in particular, played off each other sort of beautifully and brilliantly. Um, in this completely wonderfully complimentary way, um, but together giving you the full picture of it. Of course, an incredible excitement was interviewing Robert Caro, because oh. as we indicated, both Rick and I had been so profoundly interviewed. The day I certainly, I can speak for myself, uh, those summer days in the summer of 1974, reading the first four excerpts in the New Yorker magazine of The Power Broker were literally transformative. I, mm. and it was extraordinary. And Bob Carroll was a fairly reclusive. He did not go around doing a lot of interviews. So when he agreed to do an interview, long, not just one, but many long interviews with us, we were over the moon. And he was, of course, phenomenal. And we actually toured the city. We went to see the uh, Expressway, Cross Bronx Expressway and the Henry Hudson Bridge. And, and that was magical. Um, but all the way through, these wonderful um, participants uh, Marshall Berman, incredible Philip Lope, you know, literally the smartest people, the people who had thought most in the most nuanced and subtle ways about aspects of New York's history and were willing to, you know, share it with us on camera. And we thought um, that just brought a whole different side in it. And it made you feel, I'm thinking also like Pete Hamill, mm -hmm. who is not a historian, but who knew as much history as any historian. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like we were trying to give you a rounded picture of it. We did, we were aware that probably there was, there weren't going to be many, many documentaries like this. This was it. And uh, we wanted to make sure to have the best of um, thinking about the city. I was really struck by some of the politicians too. I mean, Governor Cuomo, um, S Senator Moynihan. I mean, it is astonishing, um, you know, or not. I mean, that, that the, here are these great New Yorkers, you know, Moynihan, who's a, you know, a public intellectual, you know, bar none, um, and is so missed, whose knowledge of history, knowledge of American history, knowledge of American politics is so deep, knowledge of New York, you know, got kind of a born and raised in Midtown, you know, in near Times Square. And so the things that he brought, both as a citizen, as a New Yorker, as a politician, as a historian, and Mario Cuomo as well, I mean, another sort of kind of self-made student of New York's history um, who could speak so eloquently about so many different parts of it, or Ed Koch. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like if you oh. were to be a politician in New York is to know, is to absorb its history and to make sense of its history in a particularly deep and powerful way. And so I think that, you know, they in many ways rival the historians, these wonderful men and women who we had, who, but these, these political figures who kind of you know, shed light on what it means to be a politician in New York, you know, over the centuries and, of course, over their own careers. And, I, you know, I would say that 
the time that we were making the film, the initial episodes of the film, coincided with what was really a golden age of flourishing in New York historiography. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone, James, that, that you were just met, mentioning and, and many more. I mean, it was just New York, which had been always a topic of obviously conversation, but of history writing, you know, from the beginning, really, really kind of boomed in the 1980s and 1990s and after. And so we were, you know, Mike Wallace's volumes, Gotham um, hadn't even come out. Ken Jackson's history encyclopedia of the city of New York hadn't even come out. He instantly lent us, you know, sort of the, you know, the galleys that he had back from the printer. Amazing. You had a galley copy of the encyclopedia of New York. (laughs) Um, And so we were able to avail ourselves of this astonishing work that was being done that was fresh and that was new and that was insightful and not only on the big scale, but then on, you know, kind of every particular small scale as well. So we were really the series would have been an impoverished thing to be sure if it hadn't been for for what all these men and women put into it. And I have a feeling you spent a lot of time in various archives around town. Of course, you know, we filmed extensively at the New York the Historical Society, at the New York Public Library, at the Museum of the City of New York, at the National Archives. I mean, the archives on New York are simply astonishing. And all, all those archives I mentioned are, again, not they, they may be locally based, but they are not local archives. They're national archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the New York Historical Society's collection, um, both the manuscript collection and its photographs and images is just astonishing. I mean, you could make you. We didn't have to, but you could make an extraordinary film just on the images they have there alone. And so to be able to have the abundance of material historiographically and and visually that was available in New York, which was really, you know, I mean, and after all, this is the place where the media, you know, first emerged in such a sort of, you know, rich and powerful way. So you have all these media archives located here, Mm -hmm. um, which document the story of New York right from the beginning, right on down. So it was really kind of the embarrassment of riches we had in that respect, whether it was maps, blueprints, drawings, you know, photographs, stereoscopic views, you know, then finally on into the first films, which of course the film business began in New York City, not on the West Coast. And so you have like all the old paper prints, you know, it's astonishing the number of those early movies are dedicated to just, there's the camera plopped down on the street of New York, just watching, you know, the wind blowing in front of the, you know, the Flatiron building on 23rd Street, um, just kind of like sort of slack jawed at the motion and the kinetic beauty and power of a city. And of course that city was going to be New York. So no matter where you come into, you know, the media archive for this, what you discover is that New York is so, so deeply covered in such, in a way that just made a film inevitable. There, there is a magical moment. I think it's in what episode four, where the narrator says, um, a man climbed up with a, a new device called a motion picture camera. Exactly. Set it up and started capturing, what was it, 20, was it the Flatiron? Flatiron, yeah. 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 Well, a, actually, 34th Street. People stood in front, you can see in the original films, people stand in front of the camera motionless because they <laughs> thought he was a photographer. And in those days, the exposures were so long oh, right. that to get a good exposure, you had to stand still. And they had no idea that it was a movie camera because they had never seen there was no such thing. I wanted to add that, um, you know, we call it a documentary film and it is a documentary film in the obvious sense about being about the history of New York. But when strikingly, I think when you look at it now uh, and you see uh, 
the likes of Allen Ginsberg or uh, Alfred Kazin or Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Brendan Gill, mm-hmm. his inimitable, New York was founded by the Dutch. Amazing. The Dutch oh. didn't give a damn about anything except <laughs> making money. And it's, it's actually a, a documentary in a different way. I mean, these names, which are names which people might be interested in, and there they are, alive and holding forth and their marvelous accents and voices. And it captures now a whole slice in the case of the four people I mentioned who are all gone. Um, mm-hmm. it, it connects you with a slice of New York that's also now gone. And you were filming this over so many years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Brendan Gill actually, hadn't he already passed by the time this came out in 99? That's right. That, sadly, because he was one of the very first people that um, we interviewed. And in a sense, inevitable. I mean, he's sort of uh, like, what a New Yorker uh, just in, in every way. And that he could he could speak, of course, with his incredible, his incredible patrician accent. Um, which nevertheless was streetwise and so deeply, deeply aware of every aspect of the city and aware of his own awareness. No one more ironic and, and mischievous than Brendan Gill. Um, no. And so, you know, I, I really agree, James. I feel, I feel so blessed that we were able to have so many of these New Yorkers from a generation now, almost all of them passed, um, who could speak of the city, you know, born, some of them in the late 19th century, um, you know, or the early 20th century who could speak so powerfully of a city, which, you know, after all, you know, New York is going to be 400 years old in a, in a year or two. Um, it's a young city. And, you know, it's young, obviously, compared with other major world cities. And, you know, to say that, like, the Erie Canal was really its launching pad is to say that it's scarcely, you know, in its modern form, 150 to, to 200 years old. And to sort of see, you know, across the 20th century, this city exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, remember, the five boroughs only came together into Greater New York in 1898. So, you know, it, it really relatively re- recently finished piecing itself together, you know, as a political geography. So that's astonishing to be able to have known men and women who sort of saw it growing up in real time. And that period, say, between the First and Second World War was just wars was just so extraordinary where New York, you know, went from being an important, maybe the most important city in in the country to being the preeminent city in the world. There was no question that the UN was going to come here, you know, after the Second World War was over. So New York's emergence, not just as a national city that was key, but as like, you know, a preeminent international city is all something that's happening across the sweep of the 20th century. And therefore, across the sweep of what most of our episodes are about. So it's well, a really, it's a biography, it's a history, I, I want to say in many respects, almost in real time of the unfolding of the life of a city. Well, you just took us uh, into the 20th century and we're going to go deeper into those topics, in fact, all the way up to today, and the work that you're currently doing to document what is happening in New York right now. We'll have much more with Rick Burns and James Sanders right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Today's show is brought to you by the podcast For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Historian Ted Widmer will tell you about the two 13th Amendments, one for slavery and one against, that still exist. Did you know the Nazis copied the U.S. in the 1930s because they thought we'd perfected the caste system? Isabel Wilkerson compares the U.S., India, and Germany and discusses all the missed opportunities due to the U.S. dehumanization process of slavery over 246 years and 12 generations. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss examines declarations of war and why presidents turn to resolutions instead after 1942. Did you know that nine years of war in Vietnam was caused by a congressional resolution based on an incident that LBJ knew never happened? For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. So, Rick Burns and James Sanders, let's jump forward a bit. We've, uh, we've discussed episodes one and two of New York, a documentary film. Um, episode three covers the, let's say, the, the Gilded Age up until 1898. Um, episode four, The Power and the People, um, up to World War I. And then episode five, Cosmopolis, the Roaring Twenties uh, coming to a crash um, with the stock market and the Depression. So really taking the story to 1931. Now, you just mentioned later 20th century history. Those stories would be covered, but they were not covered in this initial five-part series. So why did you stop in 31? We stopped in 31 because we had to go on the air. 
Um, so we knew that we weren't, we knew that there was going to be a to be continued dot, dot, dot at the end of, you know, the, the fifth episode. And we had already mapped out what was seven episodes, which would take you down through the 20th century. And in fact, we ran out of time before um, the films were done and PBS just broadcast the first five episodes. And then two years later in 2001 broadcast the next two episodes. Um, and we thought that's where we were done with a film that kind of came to a conclusion as New York righted itself from the tremendous emergencies of the later part of the 20th century. We were actually doing promotion for episodes six and seven, which went from the 1930s down to the end of the 1990s, when the World Trade Center occurred. And we suddenly realized that we hadn't even mentioned the phrase World Trade Center. Um, it was a, a building that was not our favorite building, and it came at the end of the building boom, um, as the tallest buildings tend to come at the end of a building boom, because then everything stops. And so we had like been silent about it, and then we realized that here's a film about commerce and diversity, about globalization, um, about New York standing in the world, and here's a place called the World Trade Center, which mm -hmm. has just been knocked down. So we understood that we absolutely had another episode in episode eight, which had to happen. And that became the center of the world, which was the longest of the films, three hours, and brutally difficult to make because of the pain involved. Um, unlike the other films, um, this was something which was a contemporary event, which we had all lived through. And so we went back and did a film that to trace much of the history of part seven from the late 1940s down to the end of the century, but now focused on the rise and then fall of the World Trade Center. And again, that's where we initially thought by 2003, when that came out, that we were going to be finished. But lo and behold, you know, within really a matter of years, James and I understood that what was happening in the 21st century in New York was really the start of something else again. And so we are now involved in two new episodes, uh, which will come out in a couple of years. Two new episodes? Two new episodes. This is like breaking news. Okay, oh my God. <laughs> episodes nine and 10, which are collectively known as the future of cities, and really take as their starting point the aftermath of 9-11, where New York now is kind of painfully a city on a global stage, and will it recover? from this terrible disaster. And New York has, as the, Mike Bloomberg's biographer, Chris McNichols says in the new films, you know, New York's obituary has been written many, many times and it's never turned out to be the case. And I think that's true of New York more than any other city. Again and again, it confronts a problem that seems so dire when it occurs that the presumption is it can never recover. Mm -hmm. You start hearing that going back to the fire of 1835. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes right down through New York's history that once again and again and again, and now with the pandemic, you know, that no, there's no way of recovering from it. This time, for sure, the problems of being a dense and concentrated, you know, urban, you know, megalopolis cannot survive this new assault to it. And again, of course, it will survive. And so these these films are called The Future of Cities and trace New York's history from 2002 um, right down through um, to 2022. And in late last year, in late 2021, um, an updated version of your book, uh, New York and Illustrated History, came out and uh, published by Knopf. And there are two new chapters, The Future of Cities. Yes. So can can I assume then that those are a good sort of preview of what's to come in the in these next two installments very exactly 
they are. I mean, for the first time we wrote the scripts um, and the chapters um, before the film. And so they, they were done and I'm glad they, I'm glad they are because they're forming the basis of what the films are, which will of course differ. And there may be a few interviews um, in the final films that we weren't able to avail ourselves of in those two chapters, but that's very much the story we're telling, which in fact reaches back before 2002 to tell what we had never really addressed in the earlier episodes, which was how we got out of the terrible crime situation that James talked about a while ago, that the 1990 was the worst homicide year in New York's history. And five years later, it had plummeted. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Um, and so telling the story, because there would have been no New York in the 21st century, really, um, to, to do a film about um, if it had not managed to figure a way to make itself safe. And it did figure out a way to make itself safe in very complicated ways, which obviously in, came to involve stop and frisk as well. So there were um, really crucial downsides. And that moment in the 1990s has very complicated and very long echoes down to today um, in ways that are good, but are also ways that are bad, which our films are very much alert to. Speaking of complicated, um, so in episode eight, I believe, there's repeated reference to Mayor Giuliani um, and his role in, you know, as Amer actually he's he's singing the praises of LaGuardia, I believe, in episode in, in a previous episode as well. So we, he, you know, we're introduced to the mayor who, of course, was the mayor on September 11th, 2001. And we do see him as, you know, and remember him as the hero um, of 9-11 and guiding the city through that extremely difficult moment. And and here we have him today too. I mean, it, it's he is a complicated figure um, to sort of get your head around. He is a complicated figure. I mean, and I, all, all I can say is that you know uh, his the story of his time. You know, as uh, you know, you know, as a United States Attorney General, and then as Mayor, um, in which you know many good things happened to say mm -hmm. to say the least. Um, many difficult things happened as well. I mean, there was the culture of policing in New York um, took a turn, which many people, uh, understandably, um, myself included, feel that in many ways it was a turn for the worse. Um, and that was very much under Giuliani's watch as well, even as the crime rate plummeted, which was very much under Giuliani's watch. You know, and he became, you know, he was a stern public official who was known for his law and order um, mentality and gifts. Something happened. Um, and it's that's sort of beyond our time. And so I'm struck again and again. In fact, we were making a sample reel of the early episodes and there's uh, Mayor Giuliani uh, talking about diversity in the city um, in a mm. way that's very powerful and very moving. And it almost seems like, dare I say it, a different person. Um, mm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy and proud that we were able to have people of all kinds, uh, Moynihan, Giuliani, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is in there. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, very struck by the fact that um, I put it this way. I don't think we would interview Rudy Giuliani today. I'm not sure what he would bring to a story of New York any longer. You know, I in, in getting ready for this interview, I, I watched um, interviews from 2001 when the episodes uh, six and seven came out. You were on Charlie Rose, uh, right? I mean, like a week and a half after 9-11. Right. And, and, you know, you and, you and Charlie were talking about 
the mayor's leadership. And it it was very striking to see that, that these two episodes were coming out less than 20 days after this horrible event and being shown to a, traumatic, a traumatized nation, right? And that there were these incidental images of the Trade Center, even if it wasn't really named or really spelled out. It was such an important part of the skyline. And there they were over and over. It's almost like they were stealing every scene, obviously, understandably. Boy, that's so beautifully put, Tom. I, I felt that very much, that any scene they happened to be in, they stole the scene, you know, as, as remains the case to this day not with the same kind of knife edge that perhaps was the the case in, you know, in 2001 or two or three. But still, when you see those buildings, one feels the razor edge of their loss. Anybody who was here at the time, you know, feels that so, so strikingly, um, you know, and as everybody who speaks about them in in our eighth film, you know, um, you know, Pete Hamill, you know, Mm. like, then there was, it's gone. He said it was like, you know, he came out of a meeting of the museum, board of the museum of the city of New York in the Tweed courthouse and looked just in time to see the second plane go in and then to see both buildings fall. Yeah. And, and, to, and to watch it happen, you know, in what seemed like a slow motion, 10 seconds. And then where weren't they? You know, it was unimaginable that they wouldn't be there. These two twin Goliaths. Um, and as, as Pete Hamill put it so movingly, his thought was there's something new in the world now. Um, And I think that there's a way in which that's really been true globally. Mm. At the moment of 9-11, you know, struck at New York, struck at the country, struck at the world. And there's, it, it remains one of those really, really powerful and painful before and after moments um what happened before and what happened after and you know speaking about mayor giuliani i mean he was not particularly well liked coming to the end of his term you know in the summer of 2001 and he you know he stood up you know there he was with his you know kn95 mask then mm-hmm. um you know and to have someone who was i mean remember it was he who put a special police facility in the world trade center which came down with the buildings and people who sort of remarked on the foolishness of having done that. But nevertheless, here was, here was this important political figure who was standing for New York. And he was there. He went there immediately. Absolutely there. He, right. He, on the streets. Um, and that was crucially important to have, have someone. So to give every credit where every, any credit is due, you know, it was an important moment to have a mayor who stood with the people of New York and, in so doing, stood with the, with the country um, at that moment. And he'll always be, he'll always be remembered for that. Yeah. James, I'm wondering, you know, if I can't imagine the difficulty of writing a script and pulling together that material in, you know, the immediate aftermath of that. Well, um, um, it was very strange. Um, my loft, my home at, at the time of 9-11 was on Duane Street in Tribeca, which was literally seven blocks north of the World Trade Center. Mm. I left that morning to go to Los Angeles to have my photograph taken for Celluloid Skyline mm. on, the, on the Paramount lot, which I'd gotten permission to shoot on. And to keep wow. prices down for air, fare, and so forth, we picked a Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Mm. So I had left and um, was in the air when it all happened, which was a very strange experience. 
I'll, I'll save that full experience for another time. But I got back and Rick and I kind of almost without talking knew that obviously we were going to have to do something with this. So there's a wonderful line of Trotsky's. You, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And, you know, we thought we were done with New York history, but New York history wasn't done with us. So we set off to start writing and I, I couldn't work in my loft because the air was terrible and you couldn't even get down there without a pass. And it was so for about three or four months, I uh, fetched up in my partner's house on 23rd Street and 9th Avenue, brought books and things from there and got to to working on it. Now, the strange thing about it was that, you know, and the difference, of course, was that 9-11, as devastating as it was, happened in one day. You know, it was this extraordinary thing. It suddenly happened and then it was done. It was the, the impact of it, the psychic trauma of it would last for months and years, but the actual events were over. So everybody was traumatized. Rick and I were, were no, no less. And uh, we started working on it. I do remember working on the film being very, as Rick said, very painful process. Obviously, particularly the last third of the film when we had to actually look at and work with um, that footage, which is just, you know, unspeakable. I had to look away. I mean, 20 years later, watching it again, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it yeah. all. Yeah, we no, were clearly, yeah. we had, we had a thing with um, where we would, would do screenings of rough cuts of it. And they were very, very painful screenings, as you can imagine. And, um, you know, was, it was too painful. The idea that, and how could it not be that you would see people falling from the building, falling or jumping, you know, one didn't really know in any particular case, which it had been. And it became, you know, how much of that, how many such shots, any shots like that, you know, it had to be something or you wouldn't be able to convey what had happened. And so it became this sort of extraordinary um, effort to figure out how to titrate it was an event that was so kind of hugely documented. The amount of footage, you know, not of the first plane that goes in, you know, that's okay. really... There is footage. No you had one, yeah. yeah. Well, Jules and Gideon Noday, these French, wonderful French filmmakers, were filming with the fire department down there, and the only shot was the one that Jules and Gideon Noday got, where they're looking up from a manhole cover where there was a gas leak, and you hear a roar and a plane goes left to right and it goes into the North Tower. That's the only shot of the first event. Everything else now, all eyes, all cameras, you know, every news agency is trained on lower Manhattan. And so the amount of footage there is, and of course these things that happen, like the falling of the buildings. I mean, yeah. even before that, I mean, the, 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 the horror of, of what happened before that. Um, and so just trying to figure out how to how to handle material that's that, that's that painful. I'm wondering about the parallels then to producing this next episode and the challenges, you know, all of the challenges of the past 20 years. But let's just take COVID. I mean, how has it been getting the interviews together, writing the script, a look, you know, standing back and trying to look at this thing historically? I was, I was going to say that, whereas, you know, 9-11, obviously, as we said, it just happened in one day. COVID, obviously, was years and years. 
you know, Rick and I had <laughs> the reason for your breaking news. Rick and I had intended to make one new episode, but I probably took hold. It was obvious that the, the COVID story alone, the pandemic story alone, which was a global story, one that nonetheless hit New York in a particular way for many weeks, if not months, in a way that seemed to say something, at least to people around the world, about New York was going to be more than, you know, it was just one too many thing in the Gladstone bag of, of a single episode. So, so we moved to two episodes. And then there was the challenge writing about it and trying to grasp it. And uh, that was a very strange experience indeed. I mean, being, we had decided to, that we had to get the book published by the end of last year, which meant the book had to be submitted by early last year, mm -hmm. which meant that while COVID was still happening in a big way, we had to tell the story. It was like telling the story of a battle while the battle is going on. Yeah. And that was one aspect of it. And another aspect of it, of course, was that COVID was unusual in that unlike 9-11, which everybody in the world could see, it was meant to be seen and it was seen, um, and certainly everyone in New York could see it, um, COVID was the, the actual horror, most horrible aspects of it were virtually hidden because no one could go in the hospitals because of the nature of COVID. You couldn't have reporters wandering around, right. you know, there. So unless you were, you know, a victim or a doctor or a nurse or a hospital staff. Nonetheless, there were writers and reporters who managed to get access and certainly to interview doctors and nurses and other people on the front line. And so we were assembling those incredible uh, documents, the New Yorker magazine, New York magazine, the New York Times, the Atlantic, mm -hmm. I would say, were all mm -hmm. great sources for that material and um, piecing together for the first time in a kind of historical way, what had actually transpired, how it had unfolded week to week in those terrible weeks. And, and doing that, <laughs> sitting on, in, in my case, sitting on a rooftop in Tribeca, um, not on Duane Street, now a little farther away, but sitting on top of a silent city, um, still in the throes of the very thing that we were writing about. Um, you've included a photo an incredible photo of Times Square that is virtually empty, save the um, the naked cowboy who's still standing there with his guitar. But it's just haunting. I, I hadn't really thought about how to tell a story visually when no one's really around. You know, you're documenting emptiness. Those weeks and months um, are the most haunting time, I think, in the city's history. Um, to be out you know, at eight o'clock when the curfew began after George Floyd in mid-late June of 2020, to be out on the streets of New York at eight o'clock and have there be nothing but um, kind of official police and fire vehicles um, rumbling by, no one on the streets, no one in Times Square. Um, we spent a day filming, uh, two days filming um, that month, and it was just astonishing to go from one part of the city to another at a time when New York of all places was just emptied out. You know, it's now it's still relatively empty, but so much, you know, so relatively not that it's astonishing. It feels almost like it's back to normal, which of course it isn't. Um, and it'll take a very long time to get quote back to normal. Um, but I think that those, those months, you know, um, and those particularly those weeks in June of 2020 are, are going to remain, you know, kind of in the hearts and minds of, of New Yorkers for a very, very long time. And when can we look forward to possibly viewing episodes nine and 10? 
2024, you know, the 400th anniversary of the founding of New York. Nobody intended it that way, but there's a kind of a, ki- a kismet that's kind of come around, which is at 1624, you know, the Dutch come and set up shop in the harbor. Um, and now 400 years later, uh, 2024, which, you know, it's beginning, I think now, Tom, to dawn on people that that's a momentous, you know, milestone. And, and we're really, really glad that these new films um, will be coming out and a kind of a, re, a, a reemergence of the, of the original aid as well. But to tell the story of, of New York's recent history at this critical moment in the life of New York and the world at the time of the 400th anniversary is going to be is super special. We're really, um, really glad that 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 we're going to be able to be part of that. We can't wait to see it. Um, As it stands today, all eight episodes of New York, a documentary film, can be streamed with a PBS documentary subscription. And their newly updated book, New York in Illustrated History, was released late last year by Knopf and includes material covering New York's history up through today. Rick Burns and James Sanders, it has been a real pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you so much for being on The Bowery Boys. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Tom. It's been wonderful to be with you. And thank you, listener, for joining us today on The Bowery Boys. This show is made possible by our supporters on patreon.com slash boweryboys. It is their small monthly contributions that keep things running full steam ahead over here. And to thank them, we offer Patreon-only extras and outtakes. Uh, we, we regularly poll our patrons about topic ideas. And patrons get an early heads up about Bowery Boys' live events in the city. For example, they already found out about that upcoming live show at Caveat, uh, which, by the way, is on September 1st, 2022. So a deep thank you to our patrons and an invitation to everybody to join the party over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We also have some really cool upcoming new walking tours that you should check out, including our insider's tour of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses tour of the village and the historic hotels of Midtown. Join these and many more walks over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you so much for joining us today and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>